0: And good morning, evening, afternoon, wherever you are in the world. This is Harrison Smith with another episode of Cinema. And it's all brought to you by Dark Matter TV. Dark Matter TV is a streaming platform where you can find not just current genre entertainment and horror, sci-fi, thriller, and action, but also classic content that takes you back to the great old days of late night cable and finding those cult and classic films that they just don't make anymore. Available for download on Android or Apple, or visit darkmattertv.com. It's free, it's fun, and it's gonna grow. This is an episode that could run a little long. At the start of this recording, I I might break it into two parts. We'll we'll see how it goes and how long this thing runs. I wanted to address the recent headlines that once again embrace fear-mongering and the scream that the sky is falling over theatrical exhibition, Uh, when it comes to such films as Godzilla vs. Kong and some of the bigger blockbusters that were announced to be heading toward uh, HBO Max for release coming this spring. And in in addition, uh, simulcast, uh, they'd be showing in theaters as well too. And you've got people saying, well, this is it. This is the way it all ends. Uh, Going to the movies, the way that we've gone to the movies, it's all over. Theatrical exhibition is in its death throes and that's it. It's all over. I don't believe that. And this is more than COVID-19. From having a long history in theatrical exhibition, I'm going to get into all of this and support my, my statement that theaters and theatrical release, they've been in trouble for a long, long time, long before a pandemic and COVID-19. So I'm going to examine that and then come out on the other side to say that I don't think this virus and this pandemic is going to end things the way that we know it. I I just firmly do not believe that. And I'm going to support why. But first, here is a brief history of theatrical exhibition. One of the first theatrical showings, if not the first theatrical showing, was in 1894 in America. And the owner of the film, it was a girl dancing, a silent film of girl dancing, was shown to reporters. And the owner was Charles Jenkins. And he called his projector a fantascope. And then this Jenkins guy sold everything over to Thomas Edison, who promptly renamed everything the Vitaphone. Now Edison opened his first official movie theater in Buffalo, New York. And then the first official permanent movie theater opened in 1902 in Los Angeles. And I believe it showed a 12 minute film. And most of you or some of you might know it was called The Great Train Robbery. Now, again, it was 12 minutes long. And the big thing about The Great Train Robbery is the fact that it boosted filmmakers' resolve to continue making movies. People saw that this can be something. And then by the 1920s and 30s, big names like studios were buying theaters like Paramount and Lowe's and Warner Brothers and Fox. And these giants dominated the business until there was an antitrust ruling that that came out of the US Supreme Court right at the end of the 40s, around 1948. So then through the 50s and through the 80s, Movie theaters dominated America's thirst for, for entertainment. This is what we did. We went to the movies and the movies are a night out and it's a place to go and it's a social thing. It's a big deal to go to the movies. You pack the family up and whether it's a drive-in like in the fifties when drive-ins started and some of you may even know that your parents put you in trunks and hid you so they didn't have to pay that extra extra admission fee. It created an American ideal. So the movies, whether drive-ins or in a theater, became a night out. And while the movies are popular today, we're excluding the pandemic, modern technology, as most of us know, also the, the start of cable television and playing feature movies on cable TV, and then the expansion of home theater systems into true home theater systems where you can now, through projection or even LED screens, have up to a hundred inches on the wall for a screen and, and bigger. It's made going to the theater less popular because it's made watching movies very, very convenient. And we're, and we're going to get into all of this. This is just kind of the highlight of all of this. So can theaters go away? The truth is, is that the, the theater experience model was broken. I'm telling you, it was broken before COVID. And I know this because I ran a multiplex theater for a major chain for eight years and then I worked as an usher and then an assistant manager in the mid to late 80s for another major chain that was absorbed. So I've watched theatrical distribution change and go from privately owned chains to absorbed by bigger, bigger chains. We have a lot of issues to go over here and there was a very cynical attitude in running a theater chain. When I started as an usher, In 1983, I believe it was, I worked for a company called Music Makers Theaters. And I've even tried to find their logo online or even one of their intros and I I can't find it. I don't know how long Music Makers was in business, but they sold out eventually to Lowe's Theaters and then Lowe's sold over to Sony. And then the whole thing I think was absorbed by AMC or Cinemark. And you see what I mean? It's like Pac-Man. They just keep gobbling things up. But I watched as theatrical exhibition changed because I started working the summer before the big 1984 season. And that was the 84 season of Gremlins and Ghostbusters and Star Trek III and The Karate Kid. And and it can just go on and on and on. The Last Starfighter and yada, yada, yada. I watched as if you wanted to see these movies, you had to go to the theaters to see them. And most of all, experience them. Now downtown, we had an old theater that used to be the only theater in town. It was called the Sherman. And that was a theater palace. And that was a difference between a multiplex and a theater palace because even though by the time I was old enough to start seeing movies at the Sherman, that theater palace had started decaying. So what was once a regal place to go see movies, we're talking the big opulent curtains on the side of the theater and very fine architecture and beautiful carpeting in the aisles and plush seats. Well, they had fallen in disrepair over the years. And by the time the late 70s and 80s rolled around and multiplexes started coming in, they changed the way that we were watching movies and people were no longer coming to small theater palaces or single screen theaters. They were going to multiplexes with gigantic concession areas and huge lobbies. And we could now move large volumes of people through that lobby into the theater, get them out and show that movie seven, eight times a day if you had to, depending on running time. So the attitude and the way that we started watching movies or way we were watching movies that changed. And it changed from an experience where some of you may be old enough listening. This can remember a time when you went to the movies. It was an all day affair. This is all about defining the movie going experience. It was a date night. It was a night out. Memories were made make out sessions in the back rows, all of that kind of cool stuff. And I've talked about this on this podcast before of experiencing Jaws, both in the theater and in the drive-in in in its 1980 release, re-release, that was an entirely different experience than watching it on cable or watching it on VHS DVD. And you know what? No matter how beautiful the transfers are and how big the screens get at home, it's not the same as sharing this experience with a gigantic audience and listening to 200, 300 people and up all laugh at the same time, applaud. I remember seeing Superman 2 with Christopher Reeve in 1981 in the summer of 1981. And I remember when Superman returned, when he got his powers back and he came back and you see the Daily Planet newspapers blowing off the stack and he flies up to the window and he says, just before he says the line, General, would you care to step outside? I remember the audience applauding like crazy. And then at the end, when Superman was flying, carrying the American flag to return it to the White House, you don't get that at home. You don't get that on VHS beta. You don't get that on DVD and you don't get that on a hundred inch screen. That's only something that happens in the theater. So while HBO Max and other sites step up to replace theaters or think they're going to replace theaters. And once COVID is under control, Are people going to ignore theatrical and go right for the experience in their homes? Let's look at some of the issues as to why you can see why the media is saying theatrical's in trouble. But again, I'm giving you the both sides of the story and we'll go from there. Let's see what you think. What are the benefits of staying at home? Number one, convenience. Number two, you can watch it as many times as you want. Number three, definitely price. Okay. And then let's take in all the other factors, such as assholes, lots of assholes, people that can't shut the fuck up in a movie, people that bring their screaming, crying kids, people that are just obnoxious. They are on their cell phones. They're talking to each other. They're up and they're down and they're up and they're down. And then you have to go to something that most of us never thought about before while we were growing up and seeing movies. And now you have to worry about if some crazy bastard has brought a gun into the theater and starts opening up on you. Never before did and except in the last couple years now, the last two years, have I gone to a theater and the first thing I've done with whomever I'm with is say, there are the exits right over there. Let's sit closer to the exit. And here's what you do. If something happens, how to get down on the floor and how to get the hell out of that theater. Why should we have to deal with these kind of things? The technology has now finally created true at-home theaters. Forget all that crap in the mid-80s with home theater systems with your forehead VCRs and your, your stereo VCRs. They had not calibrated the speakers properly, the amps, but none of that was ready for true theatrical home viewing. We're there now. And there are people that actually build or when they go to look for their homes, they will convert a a room into a media room or home theater. And people now can go as far as buying theatrical rows and seats and folding seats and, and the whole thing. And you can make it sound just like a movie theater. In fact, nine times out of 10, even better at home. Can this still replace date night, a family outing? Well, one of the things too is I used to say all the time, even when I was running the movie theaters and people would complain about the price and I sympathized and that is, you know, it used to be dinner and a movie. Well, now it's become dinner or a movie. The price just to bring your average family to a theater can top well over a hundred dollars, but you're not getting out for under 20. Not, and that's not with a family. I'm talking about just you just to buy the ticket and buy a basic concession item, good luck with trying to get out unless you go really at some kind of special. So cost is an issue. And then we're not getting into, of course, the whole issue with 3D and IMAX fees where a ticket alone, you're out of pocket, already $15 and up just to see the movie. We're not talking about buying anything inside the theater lobby. And that's why people, of course, will try to sneak their own food in because, you know, people want to pay $5 for that Kit Kat. Now, I know how the, the payments and everything worked or how pricing worked in the concession stand. So I can tell you when I was running uh, our multiplex, a large popcorn uh, was really the cup is what you're selling. So that bucket might have cost anywhere from 15 to 25 cents. I'll give you 35 to 50 just to be safe. Everything else was profit. And that's because theaters make their money off concessions. A lot of people go, oh, you know, Avatar made a billion dollars. Theaters should be happy. Most theaters have an agreement with the studios that they don't really see much of anything. Sometimes they make, if they're lucky, a dime to a quarter off every dollar spent on a uh, ticket. That's not a lot. Okay, because the distributors are already saying we're getting this back and we get it first. Maybe after six weeks of running, and look, this is all different for every different uh, theater that that releases their films. But that distribution has a very harsh deal for most theater chains, which is why I heard some people saying, "Well, how can Regal or AMC be burning through their cash? You know, they had you know uh, the Marvel movies and all that. Yeah, that's all great." but they're not really making a lot of money off that theatrical rental. What they're making their money off of is that $5 bucket of popcorn, your combo packs, your $5 or $3 candy bars, ice cream. And that's why now they're serving booze. You're getting reclining seats. That's all expense. You're paying for all of that. So the fancier the theater you go to, the more you're going to pay at the concession stand because somebody's got to offset those costs. Harrison, you seem to be dooming the theatrical experience. I'm not, but let's go back and look at exactly what we consume and why theatrical distribution had issues long, long before COVID came along. I'm telling you, COVID is just a scapegoat. There's a far bigger problem, and it's not just with exhibitors. It's also with the theaters and the studio system itself. There was this really common uh, misconception right after the 9-11 attacks in 2001 that President George W. Bush urged Americans to go shopping. That was not the case. Over the years, it's been simplified into that message, but in reality, and this is a quote, of what George W. Bush actually said after the 9-11 attacks. He said, it's to tell the traveling public, get on board. Do your business around the country. Fly and enjoy America's great destination spots. Get down to Disney World in Florida. Take your families and enjoy life the way we want it to be enjoyed. He was trying to convey, and look, just so we don't get all political in this 2020 political world, I am neither Republican or Democrat. I don't have an agenda. I'm telling you, this is what the man said. And people instantly wanted to take it out of context. He wasn't saying go shopping. What he was saying is, don't let these attacks and the fear stop you from living your lives. Not once was the word shop or any form of it used. And again, this is not a political defense. Rather, something in that speech to a shocked nation did stand out to me, and it can be applied to the entertainment industry. While we were not directly urged to go shopping, the simplistic picture of consumerism congruent to the picture of American life was apparent from Bush. We have accepted an image of how life should be, and that is we should consume. So follow me here as I wind through all of this in this, what it could be a long episode, uh, going toward the actual filmmaking industry and the real issues behind this sudden fear that everything's going to HBO Max and streaming and theaters are going to vanish from the landscape. What this episode is about is really the the reality that the industry wants us to believe in. Is life the pilgrimages to Disney? Is it all about consuming? Is that what enjoying life is all about? I mean, look, we're on the other side of Black Friday and COVID didn't stop people from doing that. And it's not stopping people from getting out in the malls and shopping. They'll run the risk of going into the ICU. So this goes the same for film. Is a good film all about updating? What do we really need to enjoy a movie? And can COVID and a pandemic take that away from us? So let's look at the concept of saturation. We are born almost instantly. We are barraged by commercials and media. We accept the mindset that our children must have name brand clothing. They have to be fed on the latest fad diet and marketed to their respective genders in a media driven message that simultaneously says we should strive for gender neutrality. Don't you love the hypocrisy of all this? Our perceptions of the world are almost instantly shaped. And then television. Television and online viewing assaults the young with images of vapid, smart mouth, androgynous and tarted up tweens decked in the latest products. In between programming is product porn, which you know, toys and other items marketed with an image of wealthy children barkers and shills and dolls like Bratz and Monster High and Twinkle Toes do more to entice pedophiles than their child targets and the parents that must get them. I do believe that, I mean, to look at this shit. Again, all of this is marketed by shiny, happy children who hail from plenty of money with comfortable lives and a 30-second sensory assault. This doesn't include the majority of junk food ads on, on a kid outlet like even Nickelodeon. Count how many junk food ads are on these commercials. It's all about what's cool and now and the illusion of knowing more than what you really do. So by the time school starts, children are classified and tracked, even though your school claims that they aren't, they are. Any children showing the slightest deviation from the norm, questioning the system, showing boredom for the anticipated education. They're all told they have learning disabilities and a host of attention deficit disorders that that can be alleviated by a bevy of medications that the pharmaceutical industries are more than happy to dispense to you. ADD, ADHD, SD, AADD, the list, fucking goes on. Outside the scope of this podcast, we have social anxiety disorders, various depressions, and other mental disorders that paint a picture of a strung out young adult population unable to cope. Harrison, where are you going with all this? What does this have to do with streaming to HBO Max? Stay with me. The internet then dovetails with the attention deficit issue and further immediate gratification. Don't buy films download them and don't wait for them to be released pirate advance copies to see it right away. Consume every leak, consume every spoiler, sneak peek, leaked photo footage, thus eroding the anticipation for a film and its ability to be an event or something special. And that goes also for trailer analyses. Let's break down a trailer. For example, Godzilla vs Kong, they gave some kind of leaked footage from a Brazilian comic con and it shows the total of maybe 10 seconds of new footage of Godzilla swimming underwater and Kong yelling. It looks like he's standing aboard that aircraft carrier thing and he's got a collar around his neck. Jesus Christ. Somebody devoted 30 minutes to the analysis of this. Come on, man. Just enjoy the shit. Why do we got to analyze this all the time and break it down frame per frame per frame and the chances are pretty good. You're wrong anyway. Then this internet attitude also adds to don't watch full films, click on YouTube and watch clips from films, giving the illusion one has watched the full film, hit that 30 second or that 10 second skip ahead. One no longer has time to watch full movies. And now you've got sites that break a feature film down or create a feature film in 10 minute increments. Then you have your bootleg and streaming films that are immediately accessible, no waiting. They can be viewed on technology that debases this medium. You can find them, all my films are pirated on places different places you can download on apps on your television and watch them like regular movies as if you bought the DVD. And then let's go also to the look of these new films. And while our minds understand that lavish green screening looks cartoonish and sometimes as fake as a 70s Godzilla movie, the viewer accepts that this is the new medium and the new standard. Some films were not meant to be watched on tiny tablet and mobile screens, let alone wide TVs at home. A byproduct in thinking is that movies are simply made with the click of a mouse and software. They aren't art. That's the common misconception. They're product to be consumed. Disney World is not so much an amusement park, but rather a three-dimensional commercial. There's this new perception by a new generation. Black and white films are old and boring and long movies, and I'm putting them in quotes, put the word long in quotes, well, they're boring too. Anything over two years now is old and is dated. The film industry adjusted slowly to this new consumer. As the millennials came into their own and Generation Z came onto the horizon, well, we entered into a world of remakes and reboots and reimaginings. The new generation's world was already structured for pure consumerism. Movies were no longer events that made a summer magical or defined a decade or even brought a message. The industry adjusted to make them pure consumable product that like the auto industry could be updated into better models and lines every year. So the 1980s saw the rise of the VCR as the cable industry blanketed the country and studios joined to rush to get their films out onto cassette. I've talked about this before on a previous podcast. And now that allowed the consumer to directly control their own viewings. The consumer technology sector responded with new TVs, giant screens, projectors, new and bigger picture tubes. And and before the microchip and LED revolution coming in less than two decades, everything was changing. Home theater systems started popping up. I worked at a video rental store in 1984 and personally helped install dozens of surround sound, big screen systems in giant homes and two bedroom trailers. The movie theater was relocated to the living room in the form of forehead VCRs, projection televisions and speakers dotting walls. But did that really stop going to the movies? Look, I'll argue studios made a major mistake and I've said this before in releasing certain films to home video. As films are selected for historical preservation by our federal government, I contest particular films were meant for the big screen only and were compromised by their home video and TV releases. This is really no different than the argument against colorization of black and white films, which started in the 1980s, I believe. Some films were specifically shot in black and white. They were done that way for a reason by the director, When colored by computers, they lose their impact, their contrast, their shadings, and even whole inferences and subtexts and all that kind of meaning are lost through that colorization process. Alfred Hitchcock deliberately shot Psycho in black and white. It was a choice. While fans would argue coloring Psycho would be blasphemous, I would go as far as to call it criminal and a crime against art itself. It's a form of cultural vandalism. Frankenstein was shot in black and white. The monster's makeup was created to facilitate this artistic choice among many others. While Karloff was indeed made up in greenish makeup, it was to create a grayish muted pallor to the monster in black and white film. When colorized, the makeup is restored to green, thus giving a comical cartoonish effect, diminishing the impact of the film and Karloff's magnificent performance. And as I talked about in my other previous podcasts on Jaws 2, Jaws 2 was not the first sequel. As long as there have been films, there have been sequels. And You can look at the Thin Man series, the Bowery Boys, and even, you know, look at even Hammer's Dracula films and Universal's Monsters. Yes, books and even songs have sequels. but film sequels are the most interesting and they're the most accessible to mainstream consumer society. I don't want to repeat my entire Jaws 2 episode here, but Jaws 2 was made for the sole purpose of cashing in on the industry-changing success of Jaws because that movie, Jaws, was the definitive shark movie that changed the way films were made and released. It created the summer blockbuster and tentpole mentality. Jaws' impact on the American film industry and audiences cannot be underestimated. Entire industries sprouted up around Jaws 2, trading cards and coloring books and models and candies and posters, clothing, toys, all of it catching its predecessor's wave. However, it was Star Wars and its merchandising that not only again changed filmmaking and viewing, but merchandising itself. George Lucas built his empire on toys, and the universe was never the same. Look, sequels caught fire and suddenly every studio was looking for its own franchise. The original 1975 Jaws was never meant to have a sequel, let alone become a series of films that clearly illustrates the law of diminishing returns. The same was said of Psycho, yet by the 1980s, a sequel to the venerated horror film was in the works. Roy Scheider came back as Chief Brody in Jaws 2 and he had once said that he didn't think there was anything wrong with a sequel and a story that gives people a good time and This is affable enough. However, behind the scenes, Scheider was forced into playing Chief Brody again because of a legal issue with Universal Studios. Brody returned with his own gun to his own head. Scheider later stated that Jaws 2 was a contractual fulfillment and not much more. He also made sure to be busy in 1982 filming Blue Thunder to prevent any approach to returning for Jaws 3. And Anthony Perkins at first resisted reprising the role of Norman Bates, The role of the murderous mama's boy defined him. It made him a star, but he never shook it. Universal floated the idea of a sequel 22 years after the first film and Perkins respectfully declined. But Friday the 13th was up to its third installment and Universal wanted its own slasher franchise. When the studio hinted they would make the film without him, possibly using Christopher Walken as Norman Bates, Perkins had a change of heart with Psycho 2. Even small horror films that made big money like Halloween were seen as franchise potential. And while John Carpenter clearly intended for his 1978 masterpiece to be a standalone picture, Universal again had other plans. Halloween 2, 1981 led to a slew of, of inferior sequels and presently two remakes. Other films like The Omen, The Exorcist, Friday the 13th, well, as we all know, they bore sequels and some with mixed success or even outright failure. I mean, The Exorcist 2 makes my top five list of worst movies of all time. However, I think by now, if you've been listening to me all this time, you know what I think is my number one worst all-time film, and that is Jaws the Revenge. (laughs) Sequels did not have to be good. They were created to bring in money on a tried and true product, give the people more of the same, was a simple formula, and one that studio accountants could almost rely on as a magic algorithm. It wasn't foolproof, but a sequel to a successful picture mitigated a certain amount of financial risk and exposure. Now, are you staying with me? Because I'm going to get to this whole connection between the theatrical experience and releasing films on streaming and and HBO Max and the like. The next step in the evolution of of consumer cinema, that's cinema, my cinema, C-Y-N-E-M-A, was George Lucas's 90s touching up remember the touch up of his original star wars trilogy you know the special editions through the wonders of now new cgi lucas could go back and do the things he wasn't able to do the first time around so you get more ships and more creatures and even a cgi jabba the hut lucas could literally milk his audiences several times by offering a new coke and a classic coke type of home video release You can get the versions of the three films you grew up with in their original theatrical release form, or get the enhanced versions with all the new bells and whistles and even Hayden Christensen digitally added at the conclusion of Return of the Jedi to fit the canon of that prequel trilogy. In essence, this was the 90s answer to colorization, in my opinion. With new digital technology, you could go back and fix whatever you didn't like about previous films and release them in theaters which gets people to come back to the theaters. Unlike colorization, this new tool also allowed dangerous possibilities for censorship and Orwellian cultural revision. Now you can go back. If anything becomes offensive, you can paint it out. You can erase it just like that. As if Joseph Stalin became George Lucas. Find something politically incorrect. Well, you could now erase anything offensive. Lucas went back and fiddled with the whole Greedo shot first debate, irking fans all over the world. The bottom line was the bottom line. The remastered releases in 3D were a cash cow for Lucasfilm. The irony is that studios could have reaped easy profits re-releasing a number of their event motion pictures every so many years with very little cash outlay. Now they were all in the home video graveyard. Star Wars had the power of industrial light and magic to revamp the effects and remaster it into 3D. For a while there, if you remember, there were scary rumors that Spielberg was planning a 40th reissue of Jaws with a digitally created shark that would mat out uh, the original mechanical Bruce. Altering original films for the sake of fixing them implies that they were not good enough to begin with or somehow substandard. It takes away the appreciation for the art and work done by the original artists. To replace Bruce, the mechanical shark, with a CGI one Just because it would look more real is not just an insult, it is vandalism. Unfortunately, it also sends a dangerous message to the audience. Nothing is worthwhile because it can simply be altered or changed. Instead of asking an audience to appreciate the perfect dialogue and character development of Jaws, the act of remastering puts the focus on the superficial and debases the impact of the original film. The message is clear. Jaws is substandard. And we want to fix it for you. Spielberg already made waves by digitally messing with his alien classic E.T. the extraterrestrial. You remember that? He had his tech wizards erase the guns from FBI hands and replace them with walkie talkies to make the film more family friendly. Fortunately, it was mostly received with scorn and derision as it should have been. This is going to really piss off audiences and turn people away even from the theatrical experience, as you're going to see, because why love a movie in the theater if they're just going to change it later on? It messes with your memories. So replacing guns for radios in E.T., while it is ludicrous, Spielberg was pandering to a politically correct lobby that claims to be focused on the family. In actuality, it is a major sign of weakness and unmitigated defeat for art and cinema. Spielberg's actions were pure my cinema, C-Y-N-E-M-A. He made a seamless film and utilized his resources properly. Now he was going back and cynically changing things to appease for the sake of more dollars spent on his movie. It is a cash grab and it is cultural vandalism no different than censorship. Sequels, digital restorations, what does this have to do with consumer cinema and most of all going to the movies? So as I conclude this first part, it comes down to the fallout. The focus on turning films into malleable product creates a lack of appreciation for the filmmaking process. There is no longer any type of need for emotional investment into a film. You know that sooner or later it will be retouched or remade or rebooted. The Godfather no more needs a remake than the Mona Lisa needs one. Films went from art to reusable products in the space shuttle era the shark from Jaws looks fake really you really think that the CGI Spider-Man stuff in Sam Raimi's original film didn't look like a cartoon the green screen backdrops of the plotting and leaden Hobbit films rivaled the natural beauty of New Zealand I mean it definitely was cheaper to shoot probably or was it While Bruce the shark is not the most realistic creature on screen, he represents a piece of new technology created out of devotion and necessity of the time. Universal courted ideas for Jaws like Disney animating a shark or or actually trying to train a real great white before Bob Maddie came out of retirement and made an iconic monster. To go back and blithely erase what Maddie worked hard on And his artistry to appease a generation lacking imagination who needs everything delivered in literal form is nothing short of reprehensible, man. So we're going to continue this. And I'm going to bring this all home to the theatrical experience actually surviving and offering some remedies for that and why streaming is akin to The Sky is Falling. This is Harrison Smith. Thank you for listening. I look forward to talking to you on our next episode. Thank you.